It is always and has always been a blessing to be able to worship God. You think about the privilege. This is a, a privilege. It's a gift from God to allow us to assemble, to worship Him, and to accept our worship. Worship from a people who need a Savior. Worship from people who are imperfect. It is a privilege to be here today, to worship our God, and for our worship to be accepted by Him. It is good to see you here this morning, those who are present, those who are online. We praise God for your attendance. Let's go to God, please, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy and divine name. We hallow it. We sanctify it. In our hearts and in our minds, Lord God, we we know that as your children, we must understand that we can never use your name flippantly. Never use it in our common vernacular, but rather to use it in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. Help us, Lord God, to revere your name and you and your great son who died so willingly on that cruel, cruel cross of Calvary. Help us, Lord God, as your children to honor you in all that we say and all that we do. And as we are in the midst of the world, help us, Lord God, to be a shining light. As we're midst, in the midst of our, uh, your children, help us to be a shining light, the reflection of Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord God, to always remember who we are because of and through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for your gift of love. Please accept our worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and ask if it be your will. Amen. Revelation, please, chapter 20. The final defeat of the enemy. The final judgment is here. The beast, the sea beast, the earth beast, and now the final judgment, the one against Satan. Here's what's interesting about chapter 20. <laughs> chapter 20. Revelation in itself has been a book that's, that's caused so much, um, division, turmoil, <laughs> strife. There are so many ideas about the book of Revelation. I do not claim to know everything about the book of Revelation, but here's what I do know. In chapter 20, there's no mention of the second coming of Christ. There's no mention of a reign on the earth. There's no mention of a literal throne of David. There's no mention of Christ on the earth. There's no mention of a bodily resurrection. There's no rapture. There's no reference to the nationality of a people on the earth or souls or it, it, it's, it's a symbolic text regarding a state of affairs. Satan is bound. I want you just to think about that for just a moment and read with me verses 1 and verse 2 and understand, oh yeah, this has to be figurative. It's a symbol. It's not literal. Verse 1 and 2 says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the servant of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here's a picture. The picture image is not 
the angel coming down with a key, a literal key in his hand. He opens up the lid and, and then he takes a chain and he binds the spirit. How do you bind a spirit with a chain? You can't bind Satan as a spirit with a chain for a day or a thousand years. And he throws him into the abyss and closes the lid and seals it over him. It's figurative. It's figurative language. And it's very important to remember that as we go through the rest of this text because the teaching that we've heard from Revelation 20, in particularly verse 4, about all the things that's going to happen are because people go from the figurative and the symbolic to the literal. How do you do that? How do you go from symbolic and figurative to literal in one person and then go back to the figurative and literal? The point is that that old deceiver, slanderer, the old dragon, the enemy of God and his people has been bound. In other words, God is in control, not Satan. See, Satan can't bind God. But God is showing us that God not only can, but God has bound Satan. Look at verse 1 again. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for a short time. May I ask you a question? We've read the number thousand so far, many times in the text. Why do we lose the idea when we get to Revelation chapter 20? You know, you get to 20 and you go, oh man, a thousand years. It's the same teaching all the way through consistently. Satan is bound. Look back at chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was seized with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So now, the devil's bound, the sea beast is bound, the earth beast is bound. In other words, all the enemies of God have been bound and are in bondage but remember this is literal it's not literal it's figurative satan is a spirit so the thousand years are not literal they are a symbol of a complete period of time that's really important the thousand years are a symbol of a complete period of time look back to psalm chapter 50 with me for just a moment. I want to look at just a few passages as a reminder uh, in regards to numerology of what that number 1,000 really actually means, right? It's completeness raised to another level. So Psalm 50 and verse 10. For every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So are we, are we talking about only a thousand hills? Or are we, I mean, so the cattle on a, is it only a thousand hills or is that a, is that a complete number? Well, we're talking about God. So obviously it's not that God has restriction or power over the cattle that reign only on a specific number of hills, but rather all of the hills in which a cattle would find itself, a cow would find itself. It all belongs to God. That's the point. Everything belongs to God. 
Psalm 105. Psalm 105. And let's look at verse, verse 7. Verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. So then the question is, is it limited to a thousand? Or is it a complete number? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And let's look at verse 9. The Bible says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand of generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Again, the question is, is it, is it, is it limited to 1,000? Or is 1,000 a complete number? And brethren, in numerology, all throughout the Bible, that number 1,000 is spoken of as, as completeness raised to another level. That's important. Back to Revelation. So then, what's the point of the, the idea of the binding? What, what is the point that God is trying uh, to get across to us? The point that God is getting across to us is that Satan is no match for God. He never has been. He never will be. He is, he is no... You realize that we were talking about this, I think, uh, on, on Friday. That people fear Satan more than they fear God. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. And, and the reason is because they think that Satan has, has all this power, but they fear Satan more than they fear God. Satan has been bound by God. Showing us that Satan does not have power over God. And not only has he been bound, he's been bound for a thousand years. What is the picture? Permanent. You know, complete. Total. And he's released for just a short time. God's in control. Not Satan. So, ten times ten times ten is one thousand. We know that. When you, when you think about this idea, the reign is complete. And that's what's important. So let's go back and read it again. I think if you keep reading it, see, I, I read it over and 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 over again, right? So you don't get it mixed up. You just keep reading and reading and reading and reading. Let's read it again. Verse 1, Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the servant of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So now, we're looking at figurative language. Figurative language is... Is a language that, that comes to us in stories and symbols. In a descriptive means, it comes to us. Uh, it expresses truth and the purpose of figurative language. Let me give you just, just four. There's probably five or six, but to illustrate 
and graphically portray truth taught elsewhere in the scripture. We've noticed that in the book of Revelation. To explain the unseen by the seen. To make the truth more vivid for us or to us. It gives us this great picture. Figurative language conceals the message from the enemy. Of course, it reveals it to the believer of God. So when you read the Bible, you have to ask the question. Let's turn to Luke chapter 9. When should we consider Scripture or, or the verses that we're reading figurative? Let me give you three reasons, just three quick examples, and you can go back and probably find many more. But number one, when a literal interpretation involves an impossibility or at least an absurdity. You read it and you go, what, what, what is, how is that even? Let's look at Luke 9 and verse 57 to get an understanding of this. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father, my dead father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, you and I know that a dead man cannot bury a dead man. Right? So it's figurative, right? But what God is saying in the message is, when he's speaking to us, he's saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Right? It's figurative. Right? This just didn't happen all of a sudden in the book of Revelation. He's been showing us this all along the way, but we have to read the whole book. That's why it's important, by the way, to read the entire Bible. To understand the message and the language of God. Turn to John chapter, uh, chapter 11. John chapter 11. The language is figurative when a literal interpretation involves a contradiction or or some kind of inconsistency. So we'll use John 11, verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? You cannot live if you are dead, unless we are speaking spiritually. If we are speaking spiritually, we get it. It's figurative language. God is saying that his people live forever, and how true that is. Look at Matthew chapter 18. It is figurative language when an interpretation involves some kind of uh, immoral uh, action that must be uh, followed or displayed. And here's an example. Matthew 18 and verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Simply put, remove the obstacle that's keeping you out of heaven, right? That's what he's saying. He's not literally saying, go and cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. 
Remove whatever it is that is keeping you out of heaven. Jesus uses figurative language. He used it all the time. And so when we get into the book of Revelation, it should not be a surprise that he would use figurative language again. Now back to Revelation chapter 20. So the point now, the point that God wants us to get, we're not questioning the reign of Jesus Christ. That, that is not even on the table. See, what folks have done is folks have put that on the table as if that's a subject to be discussed. That's not even on the table. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the reign of the saints. Now, now watch the scary part of this. The scary part of the reign of the saints is this. Imagine you've just beheaded that gentleman. And then God makes it clear that on judgment day, you're going to stand before that saint that you beheaded and he gets to pronounce your judgment. That's the scary part. You see, that was the question of the souls under the altar. The reign of Jesus isn't on the table. It's talking about the saints. Look again, beginning at verse 1, Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the servant of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones and they who sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a moment. They didn't come to life. They're alive. But the point of the matter is something is about to happen. Turn back to Revelation chapter 6. Here's the scary part. They're asking a question of God. The souls under the altar. Verse 9. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw the altar. under the Underneath the altar, excuse me, the souls of those who had been be slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Chapter 20, here it is. You get to make the judgment. We already know what they want. They want vengeance. Here's what's interesting. We know from chapter 20, they were beheaded. Chapter 6 doesn't tell us that. Chapter 6, you would never gain the idea that they're beheaded because they're talking. The point is that God is making. We win. And we not only win this, We win this with ease, brethren, and we reign. God is not. Turn to Matthew chapter um, 22. God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living. And Jesus said, even if you die, you will live. Do we have any examples of that? Do we even understand that concept? That we close our eyes in this life and just like that we wake up in that heavenly abode. Revelation 22 and verse 31. Regarding the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? Saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
You see, what's amazing is when you read the, and understand the Bible, there is no, no soul, no saint, no child of God who has passed from this life who's not alive. Isn't that amazing? Even though you die, you live. Oh, but there's a contrast. And we'll get the contrast later. But, but the point that Jesus is making is all his people are alive and well. So imagine Rome now coming and knocking on your door and saying, we're going to take your head off. We're going to execute you. We're going to kill you. And then Jesus says, don't worry about it. They, they can't kill you. They can't kill the soul. The soul never dies. You'll be fine. I got you covered. In Matthew chapter 17, uh, remember the Mount of Transfiguration. And there the Bible tells us in verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took him with him, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. But Moses and Elijah are dead. No, brethren. Not God's people. They're alive. You see the point? The point is about the saints. It's about the souls. The thousand years that it refers to the saints is that it means it's complete. It's raised to another level. Don't fear Domitian. He is not God. Earlier we talked about that when Jesus Christ, one day he stood before Pontius Pilate. But now Pontius Pilate is standing before Jesus Christ. Well, to make it worse, those men who had judgment, if you will, and other rulers who had judgment over the saints, and they said, you must be executed, you must be killed. Now those men have to stand before the real throne and the throne of the saints. And judgment is given to them. We reign. That's the point, Right? That's the point. Don't give up your faith because we rule, we reign. So the reign of the saints, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The reign of the saints is what is emphasized in Revelation chapter 20. First they were slain, but now they live. It's like a battlefield. There are many dead on the battlefield. But the difference is those who have the seal of the Holy Spirit come back to life. And those who are the mark of the beast do not. That's the point. We win victoriously, easily because of the power of our great God. But the Bible has already taught us that, hasn't it? It's already taught the children of God that we reign. We just sometimes, maybe because we don't read it enough, we forget. We forget. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He already told us where we're sitting. We already know the end. We know the end of the story. God ruins it for us in a beautiful way. We know the end. <laughs> you know, you, you read a book, you don't want anyone to tell you what the ending is going to be, or a movie, don't tell me the ending. But God tells you the end. The end is we reign, we live, we are well. Stay faithful to God. 
So here we are running around, sometimes I think to, um, turn to Second Timothy please, to our shame. We're running around as Christians during this pandemic with our brains scattered like the world. Why? Why are we confused? We win. We're good. We're in the hands of God. We know that God is in complete and total control. We got this. We're supposed to be the example. We're supposed to be the happy ones and say, God is good, isn't he? That's who we're supposed to be. That's what God expected his children to be. When Satan comes along through Rome, you stay faithful to God. Because we win. We got to be reminded of this over and over and over again. Why, brethren? How many times do you have to hear this from God? Maybe we're just not reading the book enough. And we keep forgetting. And we keep looking to self instead of looking to the victory. Looking to Jesus. In Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. He's told us this. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we die, we live. Excuse me. If we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Reign? We will reign with him? How many times does God have to tell us the same message over and over again? Revelation chapter 5. It's not a question of God reigning on the throne. God is showing you in Revelation 20 that the saints, the martyred saints, though you saw their dead bodies on the ground, you saw the beheading, you mourned, but they got up (laughs) because they're in heaven reigning. Isn't it beautiful? It's a beautiful text from God for us to understand. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou was slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they reign upon the earth. God has told us about an earthly reign that we transition into a heavenly reign. You know, no matter what, we reign. We reign now, we reign then. God reigns now, God reigns. We win. Hands down. Back to Revelation, please, chapter 20. We win. Over and over and over again. We win. This state of affairs is... A victory for the people of God. Verse 5 and 6 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We'll come back and grab that later in another, another lesson. The first resurrection. You do know that's your baptism, right? Yeah, because you lived, but you died, and you rose from the dead by the power of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in our next lesson. But I want to close this out 
with Gog and Magog. Because now we're thinking about and understanding clearly this, this thousand year reign. First of all, this Gog, is it Gog and Magog or Gog of Magog? That's kind of difficult because again, this is all figurative language. I want to grab verses seven through nine and, uh, and then we'll go to Ezekiel and we'll close this lesson out today. Verse seven. Remember, there's no rapture. There's no premillennialism. There's no, there's none of that. None of that's in the text. Go back and read the text over and over again. You'll see it's about the reign of the Christians, the reign of people of God. But God's people are already reigning. So it's not a new event. It's a reminder. Verse seven. And when a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. He's got a lot more folks out there. There's always people willing to serve Satan, aren't there? You know, you can watch Satan's uh, demise and destruction and, and everything else, but there's always somebody who wants to follow Satan. So he gathers his army about the, the, the sand of the seashore will be their number. In verse 9, And they came up, on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Reminds me of Elijah. Let's turn back to Ezekiel. Elijah had armies and enemies come against him and he called fire from heaven down to destroy them. It reminds me of John and and, uh, James uh, who asked God, should we call fire from heaven down to Destroy them. The point of the, ma- of, the, of the message is, Satan comes back. And he comes back again. But here's the end. Here's his last opportunity, if you will. He doesn't use Rome, because Rome's a loser. <laughs> he gives up, he's like, ah, I don't need Rome anymore. Now he grabs the symbolic picture, if you will, of the Old Testament of Gog and Magog. I would encourage you to go back and read uh, Ezekiel 37 through 39 to grab a good understanding. I'm going to just skip over to chapter 39 and read to you two passages out of this this verse. Verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I shall turn you around, drive you on, Take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I shall strike your bow from your hand, your left hand and dash down the arrows from your right hand. You shall fall on the mountain of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. And I shall give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall. On the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. So God brings with him this huge, massive army in Ezekiel. There's this figurative battle that Satan is doing the exact same thing. Now, if you just read your Bible, you go, oh, wait a minute. Why would you go and get Gog? Why would you do that? Because they lost then in the Old Testament. Why would you go and grab them, Satan? Well, because the point is, it doesn't matter who Satan goes to get. He loses. 
There's no one really for him to choose. Brother, the obvious choice is God. Satan cannot win unless you give your soul to him. Now, if you give your soul to him, he's going to be victorious. But not because he was great, but because you gave up. I close in chapter 39, verse 11 and following. And it will come about on that day. And I shall give God a burial ground there in Israel. The valley of those who pass by the east of the sea. And it will block off the passers-by. So they will bury God there with all his multitude. And they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the... What? Wait a minute. Go back for me. Did you catch that? So there's this huge army and God destroys the army and it takes seven months to bury the dead. And that's who Satan's going to go get? What? It shouldn't make any sense to us to think ever that Satan can win. 210 days to bury the dead? That's how many dead there are. Verse 12 again. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them. It will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. And they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. And as those who pass through the land will pass through anyone who sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamana. So they will cleanse the land. Seven months. Brethren, the text, the revelation, is all about the victory of the saints. It's not about the reign of Christ. It's about the reign of the saints. So the lesson is yours. Recognize your your position in the world, in this world of evil. Recognize in Christ your position. You're in the right place. You're in the right place. Stay with God. Stick with God. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't turn your life over to Satan. Don't give Satan your soul. I know you're tired. But think about those saints who are being martyred. I know maybe sometimes you're questioning, but don't turn your life over to Satan. Stay faithful and true to God. So this morning, if you are a child of God and you're struggling in your faith and you need prayers made in your behalf, the elders will do that for you. This morning, if you uh, would like to surrender your life to God, today's the day of salvation. You'll come by faith after having heard his word and believed it and repented of your sins. Godly sorrow in your heart and confess his name 
that I believe Jesus is Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Be baptized, immersed in water for the remission of your sins. If today you are willing to do that, make it known today. Don't give your life to Satan, brethren. And to those of you who are outside of Christ, don't leave your life in the hands of the evil one. The lesson is yours. God bless you and thank you this morning for your time.